at least people say Dana Roach famously wrote. Exactly. Instead of notoriously. But you have heard of me. Exactly. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Joey, do you know why people in Athens hate getting up early? Why is that? Because Dawn is tough on Greece. <laughs> wow. I I am never prepared. I know that a dad joke is coming every week, and yet you somehow always manage to just completely destabilize me. I, lo- I love how you skill. could completely tell that Dana was caught off guard by that one, too. That was like a joke grenade. It took like one second to go off. <laughs> it really did. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I am a traveler of both time and space this week. Oh, yeah? Lots of travel? Yeah, I just get, I, I'm on, I'm like 10 minutes off a 13 hour drive, so I am um, ready to talk about some magic and not stare at the highway. Love it. Absolutely love it. And we're going to talk about a whole lot of magic this week. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Game. <laughs> that is right. Dana's description is better than mine. Right, let's get let's go with his. That's the show title right there. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Oh my goodness, I really hope not. But yes, we do want to talk about win conditions. That's a pretty difficult thing to spot on EDH Rec. You can see a bunch of really cool things about popularity of cards and number of you know average number of creatures in a deck or whatever. But it's difficult when looking at a page for any commander to see how exactly they're going to win. And sometimes it's a little counterintuitive. And sometimes we just also need to be reminded about how we should be viewing the win conditions in our deck as well. You guys ready? Yeah. Let's do it. Like Alec well, Baldwin, we always will be closing. <laughs> that's that's, I mean, reference. frankly, though, that's kind of the, the attitude that we want to have for it. Yeah, so we will get started with the topic very soon. But first, I have to ask, have you guys played any fun new games? Have you gotten any new cards? Have you gotten a chance to play with anything from Modern Horizons just yet? I have not. I, I only ordered some Modern cards so far. I have not ordered any Modern Horizons for EDH quite yet. I've picked up a couple of the less expensive ones, and I did manage to get my Mirrodin Besieged out in a game, um, it, which which I had like already 12 or 13 artifacts in my graveyard, so it was immediately destroyed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Because <laughs> no one wanted to deal with that. Um, but I think that's really the only card I've gotten out in a game, so hopefully in the next week or two I will get a chance to see a few more. I picked up a handful of little things here and there, like, ooh, I want Fist of Flame and, and Feather and Generous Gift. Seems like a really good thing as well. Um, but it occurred to me that I forgot to get any Yogmoths, which I really want for, like, a bunch of decks. It's pretty pricey, so maybe I shouldn't splurge on it yet and hope to, like, actually open one in a draft. But, man, I really want Yogmoth, and it's like, now that the set's actually out and I don't have one, I'm, I'm really feeling... I really need those Yogmoths. I'm, I'm, like, addicted to sacrificing creatures, so I really need my fix. No, now you're playing that game where you're like, okay, how is my patience going to last longer <laughs> than my desire to see the price drop a little bit? 
exactly. And I'm not going to get the chance to draft this set for a little while. So I'm like, oh, what do I do? So I am very, very excited. But hey, we've actually got spoilers coming out this very week for M20 as well. We're just in an absolute deluge of products. Just today, a commander was spoiled that I think Matt probably has his eyes on. Uh, yeah, there definitely is. Uh, Kaikar, Kikar, I don't know how you pronounce it, it but it's a burb. The Wind's Fury. Uh, one, it's one in Jeskai colors for a 3-3 flying burb wizard. And it has my favorite text so far of the set. Uh, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a 1-1 flying spirit token creature. Also has sacrifice of spirits. Add one red banner to your mana pool. This is the tokens for Jeskai I've been waiting for for years. Like, as soon as I yeah. saw this, I instantly knew Shu Yun. Shu Yun is dead. Long live Shu Yun. Yeah, you've got a Shuyun Jeskai tokens deck that you've been actually like kind of searching around for a more proper commander for, and bam, M20's got it. So, I mean, this core set is looking to be really, really great too, which is awesome because sometimes, you know, core sets can feel a little like, ah, oh, you know, ho-hum with those. But it's nice to see that we're still getting some really good stuff in this upcoming set too, even when we're coming off the back of something as epic as Modern Horizons. Definitely, yeah. G- Gavin definitely heard my plea and gave me just what I wanted. I, I love because it's... I don't have to change anything about the deck. I can literally swap Shuyun for Kaikar and the deck is perfect because it's a bunch of spell slinger, like monastery mentor type of cards and then just instants and sorceries. I do like that this new burb says non-creature spell, not just instants and sorceries. That mm-hmm. I think is is very, very cool because then you can cast your planeswalkers and maybe an Aria flame, who knows? Yeah, definitely looking really, really exciting. The Command Zone guys previewed this one, and they went really deep on it, and it's definitely looking to be really, really cool. But we're not here to talk about M20. We will get to that in a future set review for sure. Before we actually get into our main topic, though, we've got two other announcements that we'd like to mention. Some folks have probably already noticed that there have been a handful of small changes to the EDHREC website. Most notably, EDHREC now supports Oathbreaker, that new format where you have a 60-card deck with a Planeswalker and a Signature spell in your command zone. We won't get too deep into the actual rules of Oathbreaker. A lot of folks have been hearing about it. You probably know the rules already, but it is really cool that we are now getting the same awesome recommendations that we would get for Commander also attached to this new Oathbreaker format. Don did a whole lot of work on it. DM wrote a really cool article on our website to sort of go over the details of how this works as well, so you should definitely go and check that out, but it's just a neat thing that we wanted to mention. One more thing as well that folks have probably noticed is that we've changed the time limits on the data on EDHREC, which is also really cool. It's no longer the most popular commanders or the most popular cards of all time. We're actually putting in a time limit. We're only going to be measuring data from decks that were updated or uploaded within the past two years. So that's also a pretty significant change to try and weed out some of the old data and to make sure that everything is a bit more updated and that the recommendations are staying fresh and that we're not bogged down by really old data. We're implementing this change. We'll probably get to, you know, all of the differences that we can notice between data in a future episode. But for now, that's a thing that people should definitely keep an eye out for on the website. Yeah, it's one way that we wanted to make sure all the data was kept current. Like Joey said, um, there are decks that hadn't been updated in years that were, you know, there were so many of them bogging everything down. It was just one of those things that that Don had talked about uh, poisoning the data when he came on our podcast. And so this is one way that we're combating that. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're looking at decks from the early days of EDH, you know, back before EDH Rec was a resource or back before you could find things on a Reddit easily. Um, I think you probably had some pretty wonkily built decks that were kind of polluting the data cloud with 
um, how they were constructed back before people really knew what they were doing. And I think phasing those out is probably good for the overall data of the site for sure. One, yeah, one quick observation, Joey, that I know you're going to like. You remember uh, that that legendary creature that I picked to be the most popular from Dominaria? Um, yes, yes, I Mul- do remember Mul- the one the one that we bet on and that the, the I then owed you a foil Muldrotha for. Yes, yes I, I, um, I painfully remember this. So Muldrotha, not just very popular amongst Dominaria, but since we made that purge of all the, the decks that hadn't been updated in over two years, Muldrotha is number four in the past two years. That is pretty impressive. That is wild. I I don't like that you're just sort of rubbing your victory in my face like you do every <laughs> week, but okay, okay. Uh, we will definitely have to look at the differences between our old data and our more updated data, uh, you know, in a future episode. Because for now, we've we've got another thing that we got to do. We've got to talk about win conditions because this is a thing that I've seen come up over and over on different you know, social media sites where people are sort of struggling to find a way for their deck to win. Have you guys ever noticed that? Someone asks for help on a deck and someone will comment, um, how is your deck going to win? Or even the people when posting a deck, they'll ask, hey, I'm struggling to find a way to prevent myself from just spinning my wheels. The deck does a lot of cool things, but it has a difficulty closing out the game. Is that something that you guys have noticed? Because it's something I've come across, unfortunately, a lot. I mean, I've definitely seen it um, because it's an easy thing to miss. It's easy to build your deck without maybe having that in mind. And it's also the kind of thing that sometimes you, even if you have a plan, you don't really realize what your win conditions are until you've actually played the game. Uh, you actually kind of find it in the edit, so to speak, after you've played 20 games, what the deck does to win might not be what you thought it was going to do to win once a deck, when you first conceived of your list. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I, I like the metaphor that you drew there too, that like just like they say a movie is found, or the final version of a movie is found in editing or something and not just from the script. That's also definitely true of actually playing the decks here in EDH. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a, a good example of that, Joey. You mentioned um, on our Kansas City show, uh, you liked my Veil of the Nightclad deck. And that was a deck I built, um, you know, because it was a weird thing that I didn't think anyone else was doing, but like my win condition... At the time, at least roughly speaking, was, okay, all these artifact creatures are going to be, for the most part, unblockable, so presumably that's my win condition, right? Well, it, it is. It's useful. I've killed people with that, but you know, having played the deck then, I got realizing things like, okay, well, if I cast a writer application on Vela herself, and if I kick it, that's 26 or 27 damage, I forget, to every player. Well, that's kind of a spell that's a win condition unto itself, and then, okay, if I've got you know, precursor golem is something that I can kick a writer application onto and then sacrifice those golems. Well, with Vela's ability, that can kill multiple people or, you know, a big hanger back walker that I sacrifice and sacrifice all those stopters with Vela out. So having played it, I then discovered there was a lot more win conditions in the deck that I hadn't anticipated. At this point in time, I, I regularly kill people with um, the Tezzeret abilities that deal damage based on the number of artifacts you control. Um, that happens very frequently the deck too and that was not something i considered when i built the deck i just wanted to put tezzerts in because i like tezzeret and he was kind of on theme yeah that also resonates with my experience we'll have to get to a bunch of these different things but for now i i also do want to just sort of linger on 
I guess, I guess the importance of the win condition, because I, I don't know, I've said in the past that I sort of view a commander as the thesis to your deck, like as though you were writing an essay, the commander is the thing upon which the rest of the deck hinges, and it is, you know, or, or at least that's the way that I tend to build. There are some folks who build with secret commanders in the 99, where that would sort of be a little bit different. But at the same time, you know, your deck is built around a specific legendary creature. But I also think that it's important to, you know, sort of amend that uh, that statement that I made to also say that your win conditions should also kind of be like theses as well. Your deck should be building to a specific point. You don't want to just be spinning your wheels. It's valuable to know what your deck does and to know how you'll win, because that will help you in-game knowing what you're trying to find, that will help you make an like make cuts to the deck to find cards that aren't actually synergizing with that win condition. It will help you know whether or not you want to add a new card, for example. Like, It's really important to hone in on the importance of win conditions, for sure. Not just because it helps you know what your deck will do, but also because it will help you defeat other players, too. If you know what win conditions are going to be for certain decks, that will help you disrupt them. Yeah, and I think win conditions... Sometimes they're not the most glamorous things to put in decks. A lot of people, and, and I'm guilty of this too, is they'll build a deck because they found some fun interactions with the commander or with some different cards and they want to build to a theme. So they dedicate so much space to a theme, but then also, you know, you play certain win conditions. Say you play uh, Avengers Endicar, you know, you might get some eye rolls or you play some sort of just win the game on the spot. So win conditions sometimes get a bad rep, but you also have to make sure that you're playing at least some number of them because at some point, all that value you get, and we'll talk about this here in a little bit too, you can have all the value in the world, but if you're not actually going to win the game, then what what are you really doing? I mean, heck, let's get to that right now. I think you're right that value can sometimes be the enemy of victory. Uh, I, I mean, let's look at the example that you brought up. Muldrotha, I think, is an excellent example of this. That's a commander that can cast things from your graveyard, which is really, really powerful. And it's really hard to, you know, lose out on a bunch of value from that because whenever people destroy your stuff, you can get them right back. But Muldrotha can also be a type of deck that does occasionally struggle with closing out the game. It drowns in value, but it's not drowning its enemies in all that value. It's not actually, you know, finally getting to the to actually win the game. Yeah, yeah. And, and I had that problem with my Muldrotha deck too. It just, it sure, I traumatized myself and I could cast a lot of spells every turn, but what was I really doing to win the game? And the answer a lot of times was not, not very much. Yeah, I had the same problem with a pre-Boonweaver Carador deck I had, which is you know a similar playstyle where I could generate all the value in the world, but actually closing a game out became a whole different thing. And that's probably why the Boonweaver combo became so important for Carador, because that was a much faster way to actually get to it, as opposed to the really grindy nature that the deck would otherwise demand of you because it's so obsessed with value and it isn't, you know, moving you quickly towards a win. What are some other commanders that you guys can think of that also struggle sometimes with just spinning their wheels? I think probably the most famous is Brago, hands down. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Blink King, yeah. Well, I think any of the Blink decks kind of have a tendency to do that too. I think Rune is pretty guilty of that. I've seen plenty of Amanatu decks that are just kind of blinking and doing a lot of things without actually advancing their game state as well. Yeah, drawing two more cards with Muldrotha is excellent value, but those two more cards don't necessarily always win you. It's like, oh, we have an island and a forest in my hand now. Great, but like, how am I actually going to win? I can't peck people to death with a Muldrifter. I just can't do that. Yeah, um, I think almost any Super Friends deck really struggles with this as well. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you have a mono white Super Friends deck, actually. I think my first thought when I heard that you had a Jeru with Eyes Open deck was, huh, I wonder how he wins those. Well, and at least in that deck, like, is is as bad as that deck is by being mono white Super Friends, at least white Planeswalkers tend to make tokens, so I can build around tokens as a win condition. And you'll have Gideon to turn into a creature as well, so at the very least, I have combat damage as a as an option it's not the best option but like other color combinations even that even have that yeah yeah <laughs> that's uh, that does actually resonate with me like planeswalker emblems are amazing but there's a reason that planeswalker emblems don't actually say you win the game on it but they get you really darn close so super friends you know it can be you know they're all those card types are all about incremental advantages um but even when you sometimes get the emblems, you can still struggle to finally get there compared to some of the other strategies that we see out there that are a bit more aggressive in pushing for a win condition. So I think Super Friends is a really, really good candidate for sort of spinning their wheels types of decks, or at least ones that can sometimes struggle. Matt, any others come to your mind? Um, so as from personal experience, Atraxa decks sometimes can fall into this trap too. Uh, they, they talk about getting all the proliferate triggers and you get all the counters or, you know, Super Friends again. Um, and maybe they spend a little too much time, and maybe this is just more personal experience, but a couple of decks that I played against, they they kind of spun their wheels, they did their thing, they proliferated a bunch of counters on different stuff, like a deep glow skate, and then they were trying to do um, the, the squid guy that makes counters and you draw cards, um, doing all of that kind of fun stuff, but they weren't actually winning the game. I think the only real win condition that I saw in a couple of games with this um, with this person was a blighted agent and they would ping somebody once and then they'd proliferate the counters and went over the, over the course of the game that way. And it that was, is a, a really good win condition. It certainly can be. But if a deck was maybe a little bit more honed, knowing that that's what it was trying to do right, right from the get-go, it would be able to you know build the deck more centrally around that and get there a little bit faster rather than spinning its wheels. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think Jason Alt, our content manager here at EDHREC, He's talked several times on his podcast, Brainstorm Brewery, about uh, Tatiova, how he'll take 10, 15-minute mm. turns and play all these lands and draw half his deck, but he still doesn't actually do anything. He doesn't win the game, even though he got all this awesome Simic value from just playing a normal game. He still wasn't winning games, even though you know he got all this mad, crazy value and did a lot of stuff, but it didn't actually progress his, his win yeah, and those, I mean, all the commanders that we just listed are super powerful. They're very powerful commanders, and they're very respectable commanders. But there are just, you know, occasionally moments where it's like, ah, this is actually struggling to finally close the game out once I've established an, a, a very compelling board state. And that's just a thing that you need to keep in mind. If you're aware of the fact that your commander can generate a bunch of value, you need to find a way to focus that value towards a very specific point so that you can kill all your enemies with it. And... I also think it would be important for us to take a quick detour to mention some things that are not specifically win conditions. They sort of feel like them, but they're not actually. Matt, uh, I know that you feel passionately about this. Do you want to take this one away from me? I sure can. So what we're talking about is cards that basically we're saying a win by scooping is not actively winning the game. <laughs> Right. If you if you You're, annoy if you annoy your opponent into quitting, <laughs> if, if that's yeah. your game plan, that really isn't a win condition. Yeah, yeah, that's not cool. All right. No. So, what are some examples? So, some examples of this um, one that we 
um, almost ran into, I guess, in, in Kansas City was Karn and Micah Synthlatness. Everybody's talking all the time now um, about putting those two cards together and essentially locking your opponents out. Not right, because everything most... turns to artifacts. Karn yep. prevents them from using abilities, means that they can't even tap their uh, lands for mana. Yeah, super big lockout. Yeah, super big. You can't do anything. You can't even... The worst part about it is, you know, we would talk about uh, Force of Vigor. You can exile a green card, but because of Mycosin's Lattice, everything's colorless. So you can't even discard a green <laughs> <Right>. card <laughs> to use Force of Vigor. Um, That's really it's, mean. It's really mean, and it's really annoying, but it, it doesn't actually win you the game. It just makes sure other people don't do anything. Um, same with just stasis type of decks in general, making sure people don't untap, making sure people basically don't play the game. I've, uh, when Benny came on the podcast, I really attached myself to his idea of, am I making sure that everybody else is having fun? And I think a lot of people agree stasis locks aren't really the most fun thing to be playing against. Well, and I'll, I'll add one addendum to this. If they're not having fun, at least make sure the game ends quickly. Like if you're going to throw a stasis lock on or a Karn lattice lock on or something, if that's your way to win and you have a plan beyond just locking the game out, I think for the most part that's fine. I don't mind if you are going to narse a notion thief and you have a way to turn that into a victory in the next three or four minutes. But if your plan is narse notion thief into windfall or something and and that's where your plan ends – no one's going to have a hand and you're just going to hope that you can then chip them out with, you know, whatever random creature you've decided to cast. That's, that's mm-hmm. not a win condition. Right. I think that's a big reason that Leovold got such a bad reputation because people would play him just to stall the game, not to actually win the game. Yeah. That's the really big thing there. Some folks have, you know, harsh opinions about things like stacks or stasis or whatever. Some folks don't, but the point is definitely to make sure that you actually are able to end the game once you establish that control because frankly the longer that you let people you know continue playing the higher the potential is that they could actually find an answer even to get out of the lock so you don't want to keep people in you know a Karn Microsynth lattice lock for you know 20 turns because there is actually the possibility that they might find a way out of it you need to make sure that you're actually winning the game after you've established control um Matt, we've got another thing in our show notes here that I know you feel particularly passionately about in the not a win condition <laughs> category. It definitely is not a win condition. It is a play pattern if, and I, I use that very loosely, but chaos cards in general. Um, if it's going to take more than a minute or two to resolve a spell, for me, that, that that's not winning the game. That will get me to scoop pretty quickly. Uh, so when I see sometimes people taking five, ten minutes to resolve a warp world, that's just you you will win because i say i quit and i will i will start shuffling my cards for sure but it will be to start a new game but if you're playing with strangers and you're going to start doing weird warp world things you probably should ask permission first and make sure they know what's going down yes well but you should also to matt's point you should have something in mind beyond just the chaos you can't annoy your opponents to death that's not how magic works yeah here's another one Oh, go right oh, ahead. I want to say, I, I would liken chaos to scotch. It's an acquired taste. It's not for everybody. Don't push it on people and expect them to like it. Well, I think that's why you get things like like why Teferi Chain Veil with Stasis, you know, it, it's a, a powerful combination. But the reason it's powerful is because you win with it. You use that Stasis with Teferi right. that you're untapping. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to, there's a combo there where you can just end the game versus I'm just playing Stasis in my whatever deck to slow things up. Here's another one that I feel pretty strongly about. Um, the idea of infinite turns or infinite mana. 
those are not inherently win conditions unto themselves. It isn't about finding infinity, it's about wielding infinity. If you have infinite mana, great, but you need to learn to put it somewhere, or else it's not actually going to do anything for you, even though it's really cool that you got there. If you've got infinite turns, cool, but what if your opponent is unattackable? What if you can't deal damage to them? How are you actually going to win? Is there something that you can find with all of your infinite turns? Because there had better be. Otherwise, you're just going infinite without going anywhere. And that is also sort of a, conund a conundrum that you can run into. So those things aren't necessarily win conditions unto themselves. You have to find a place to go after you've established your locker, you've mm -hmm. gone infinite or things like yeah, that for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So, I I, in my in my Miri deck, for example, I have an infinite mana loop, but I also have five ways that I can put that mana to use and win the game. Uh, there you go. Yeah, it's just, it turns into another case of you're spinning your wheels. Okay, so you made infinite mana. Now what? And you just have to answer that that now what part. Right. So let's get to that part of our show as well. We talked about some things that aren't win conditions, but now sort of going color by color, let's talk about some pretty popular win conditions within each of those colors. I mean, and also before we actually get into this, I guess I should also make a disclaimer. There are win conditions that apply to every color. Just because we're mentioning combat in one color doesn't mean it doesn't apply to all of the others. Any creature can end the game. Like, a combo can exist in any sort of colors. We're just going to be mentioning some, you know, colors here and popular win conditions for decks that include those colors. Decks that include these colors are simply likely to be pulled towards these types of directions when it comes to closing out a game. So, with that caveat out of the way, how about we move on to our first one? We're going to start with white. Dana, you've got a mono-white deck, so how about you take it away? I do indeed. Um, so white, the, the kind of a couple of the common ones we frequently see is Voltron, whether it's with auras or equipment. Um, white lends itself to that strategy pretty well because it has multiple ways to tutor up both equipment and enchantments. And it has commanders that actually interact with those things in a way that gives you an advantage. So that's, that's one way in white that you have to win a game if your commander is built to do that kind of thing. But even if it's not, you can still turn white commanders that aren't kind of designed in that direction into a Voltron commander because you have access to Enlightened Tutor and you have access to open the armory and things that will let you go get those pieces of equipment. And those things are native to white. So that's one of the strengths of white is it has pieces built in, even if your commander isn't doing it, to allow you to turn your commander into a Voltron commander. Get that commander damage yeah. in there. Uh, similarly, white plays really well with to tokens. Maybe not quite as well as green, but it, it does so in a different way. There's a lot more anthems available in white. There's things like um, Catherine's Crusade and True Conviction. You have Elish Norn that, you know, both kind of doubles as a board wipe and buffs your stuff. Um, you've got a, things that you can blink in white to, like, blink creatures that ETB and make more tokens. So tokens is a pretty viable strategy in white as well. And I see a lot of life gain in white as a win condition. It's one that people maybe sometimes tend to forget the win condition portion. They just build the life gain. <laughs> um, but there is ways to win with it. Felidar Sovereign, Aetherflux Reservoir. There's a couple different ways you can turn that life gain into a resource in white and actually use it as a way to win a game. Man, that's one of those commanders we maybe should have mentioned above about ones that struggle to uh, spin their wheels without... Because Olero, I have seen Olero decks that don't contain win conditions 
they just gain life forever. And I'm like, that's great, but how are you planning on winning? Is it a sanguine bond combo? Is it FLR Sovereign? And I look through the deck after the game, and there wasn't anything. And I'm like, how are you planning on actually ending this game? <laughs> yeah, Was it going to be Olaro's triggered ability? Because I promise you that's not going to work very fast. Yeah, well, winning the game is different from not losing the game. It, exactly. I mean, this is one thing maybe we could have noted earlier, but I might as well mention it now. I think the notion of actually having win conditions in a deck is maybe relatively new. I think when I first started playing Commander, it was a conversation I don't think I heard very often. I think people built a deck and their assumption was the deck would just maybe win a game because the game would take, you know, two hours. And at some point someone would just get enough shift damage and that's how it ended and you'd play a new one. And I think, you know, that was probably how it was done, you know, six, seven, ten years ago. So I think this is also kind of a new concept for people to actually think about how is my deck going to win? Interesting. I I guess I hadn't really considered it. I sort of viewed it as sort of a spectrum of as you're beginning the game, it isn't so, so much something that you're uh, thinking about. But as you become a lot more experienced, it is something that you have a, a lot more in mind. But it could also be something, you know, about the age of the format as well. That's a pretty interesting theory. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the game has just evolved in a lot of ways. And I think that's one of them. All right, all right. Well, so those were some pretty classic things that we see in white inclusive decks. Let's move on now to blue. Here are a handful of things that we frequently see in blue decks. For one, I mean, since blue tends to struggle a little bit on the combat side of things, it can instead lean towards combo. For example, uh, you know, once you have that infinite mana or those infinite turns, one of the things that you can do pretty easy is find a laboratory maniac or the new Jace and win by having no cards left in your deck. That's a pretty easy way to do it, and it certainly beats having to, you know, attack everyone else's 120 combined life totals with your tiny bird tokens or whatever it is that Blue is making. Since it struggles on the combat side of things, the combo can instead be what it takes on. But it's not just things like Laboratory Maniac. If you've got, you know, some other things like infinite mana, for example, you can even turn a draw spell like Blue Sun Zenith into a kill target player because I'll make them deck out instead. And that's uh, also pretty darn nasty. There are just so many ways to take advantage of infinite combos as well. I mean, heck, Deadeye Navigator is such a powerful card for exactly that reason. When it is combined with things like... uh, palancron or whatever to untap your lands and then blink it again and then you get infinite mana there's a lot of different ways that blue is actually able uh, to take advantage of that even with just dead eye navigator bouncing and blinking a couple of other things too so i think combo is a really strong contender for blue yeah for sure like when i think of blue win conditions that tends to be the first thing that pops into my mind the very first thing yeah now, that is surprising to me to hear actually yeah, that, that's yeah, th- what I think of when it comes to blue, is I assume, if I see a blue deck, I assume that there's some kind of a combo win con. Interesting. I was just sort of thinking of, you know, one of the things that should be on my radar, but it's interesting to hear that you have it uh, placed as a, a bigger priority. One of the things, uh, another one that we've got here on our list, that I definitely associate with blue is the uh, storm or spell slinger type of angle, which can in some cases also be the combo or infinite shenanigans. But I'm thinking of it, you know, when I sit down across from a blue deck, I definitely anticipate stuff like Talrand or Metallurgic Summonings being the type of thing that a blue deck is going to eventually use to dish out enough tokens to win the game that way, all by using cool synergies with their spells. They'll have other things like Dose into Perfection and eventually overwhelm the board on that front by controlling the board just with their spells. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my, my Talrun deck is essentially a token deck for the most part, but that's how it does it. It's, it's, it's a spell slinger into token uh, kill condition. And, you know, that's, that's 
one of the th- ways you can do it with Storm slash Bellslinger. Um, and Blue does have a lot of versatility that way for sure. And, you know, in a way, Aetherflux Reservoir works with that as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Aetherflux Reservoir is a very diverse card, and I really like seeing it in a whole lot of places. Yeah, it's almost like an artifact just goes into so many different types of decks. <laughs> Uh, so there's one other thing that we've got here on our list for blue, and that is its propensity for mill and wheel strategies as well. Making people draw a bunch of cards, making yourself draw a bunch of cards, and putting stuff into the graveyard can be very powerful just by decking other people out. It can be pretty risky, you know, traumatize only targets one person, for example, and you've got a whole lot of cards to go through, but it can definitely get there. And when you think of blue inclusive commanders that mill people out, such as Phoenix, then you start to realize how powerful those combos can be. You can use things like Mesmeric Orb and Keening Stone to definitely, you know, mess with some people for sure, but you can also use like a Mind Crank or Guild Mage, Demir Guild Mage combo, uh, to also turn all of those milled cards into life loss. But then there's also the wheel aspect to all of this as well, where you've got cards uh, accessible to you with Psychosis Crawler to combine with all of those blue wheel effects, and that can also end things in pretty short fashion. Yeah, I mean, we, we learned how good Psychosis Crawler was this past, or in Kansas City, just because, Joey, you even made a point of, I'm putting this in a Boros deck. <laughs> yeah, that, that was pretty good. I mean, I've always known that Psychosis Crawler is really good, but I'm glad that you learned something finally, Matt. <laughs> I, I am capable of learning still. <laughs> I don't know everything, despite what some people may want to tell me. <laughs> All right. So those are some, you know, classic blue win conditions. Decks that include blue can often lean in some of those directions. Like Dan had mentioned, combo. You can also usually expect to see some type of storm of spellslinger stuff going on. Mill is certainly a viable option. Let's move on now, though, to black. What are some win conditions in black inclusive decks that we often see? Uh, well, we can start with the boring ones because they're all black. So they're, of course, they're boring. Right, right, Joey? How come we gave this segment to you, Matt? You don't like black. <laughs> no, um, but black is very good at doing big mana stuff. I know it kind of seems counterintuitive. A lot of people, you know, especially newer players, think, well, green is the one that makes you know lots of mana, but black actually does it very, very well. Um, you can do things like Urborg and Cabal Coffers to generate tons of mana and then do a big exsanguinate, um, make everybody lose a bunch of life, or one of my favorites, uh, Torment to Hailfire. There's all sorts of really cool stuff like Damnable Pact as well. It's kind of like a, a black, blue sun zenith, kind of a little different. But yeah, so going big and over the top with your mana, big, big, flashy spells. Black actually does very well. Uh, another one that's very common, Joey has a lot of experience with this, is Aristocrats style decks. Yeah. Using cards yeah, like Blood good. Artist, uh, Death Triggers. So when something dies, you gain a life, everybody else loses a life. Uh, Gray Merchant of Asphodel, you know, sacrifice it bring it back, have it trigger so everybody loses uh, X life equal to your devotion to black, sacrifice it, bring it back again. Those loops are very, very powerful. Joey, how many was it? Four or five times in one turn that you had a gray, gray merchant trigger? Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was one of the best things ever. Was, I don't know about sure. best. It was pretty impressive, but I, I don't think it was the best. Um, but then, and kind of along those lines of gray merchant is, uh, black is very, very good. Probably the best color at reanimator strategies. Getting cards out of your graveyard, putting them back on the battlefield, cheating those mana costs most of the time. Uh, stuff like Rise of the Dark Realms is probably one of the most big and over-the-top big mana spells, actually, too, that you can get with black, and that just brings every creature in every graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. Uh, it's a big, powerful effect. Um, but then just, you know, entombing a regular, you know, big creature... Putting it in your graveyard and then casting Exhum, 
that'll get everything back on the graveyard for you as well. Well, just one thing, but uh, any kind of reanimate type of effect, black is the primo color if you want to bring creatures from the graveyard back to life. Yeah, I mean, I'm, of course, biased because I'm a necromancer at heart, but, I mean, these are super, super powerful abilities. Like, And to be clear, these are not the only options available to black. In fact, one of the things that you'd probably be doing with all those reanimated creatures is eventually attacking people with all of them. And black's propensity for killing everyone else's stuff removes their blockers, too. Like, that's one of the very powerful abilities of black. And so combat is certainly a component here, but you're often going to see them doing big mana things or death triggery type of things or... Or reanimatory things. That's just a really cool thing that you can find a whole lot in black decks. And they're the best. I absolutely love them. I love winning in all of those strategies. Yeah, I do love efficiently costed creatures, but when you're reanimating something at the cost of maybe one or two mana and you pay some life, that's very, very efficient. And it may not be my preferred style, but I can respect how, you know, how efficiently some of those black reanimation spells are. All right, let's move on now to our next color. We're going to be looking at red. Red has quite a lot of interesting options as well. I guess when we were first putting show notes together for this episode, I had kind of assumed that red is a little hamstrung because it's usually going to win through combat. But that's not entirely true, which is, you know, very refreshing to see. So one of the options is definitely a token swarm that red will have a whole lot of tokens, like, you know, making a bunch of stuff with Krenko, for example. Or Matt, you've got a Valduk deck. Like, that's really, really powerful. And even Valduk himself, that's a cool Voltron, but he's going to be winning through combat. The cool thing, though, is that it's not just the combat uh, aspect of tokens that can be very powerful. Like, when you slap down a shared animosity with red, that feels amazing for sure. So but amazing. when you slap down a Perforos or an Impact Tremors, that also feels really, really good. Red is just good at turning all of those tokens into direct damage in a very efficient way for a multiplayer format, and that's really, really refreshing to see for sure. Um, there, another really cool thing that red can do, sort of like black, is that red also has some big mana effects going on there too. It has rituals. Um, I can't remember the name of the one that it's like a five mana spell. I want to say mana geyser. That mana yeah, geyser, mana mana geyser yeah. is a fantastic card. That thing's ridiculous. Yeah. Or Braid of Fire can add a bunch of mana to your mana pool as well. And one of the best damage spells in this format, I think, is Comet Storm. That is a very efficient way to clean some people's clocks. Like, that will just knock them out for sure. So big mana is an option for red as well. Plus, it has all of those damage doublers, like Gratuitous Violence or uh, Dictate of the Twin Gods or whatever. Like, red can turn a little bit of damage into a whole lot of damage. Finally, we also should mention, you know, that there are some Storm and Spellslinger uh, options for red as well. It is also very easy to do some Aetherflux reservoir type of things, some type of Storm Sentinel Tower, uh, what's it called stuff, for a red deck too, because it can blaze through a bunch of spells so quickly. And because it can produce all of that mana with those rituals, it can blast off with one big Mizzix's Mastery for a really, really powerful finishing flourish. So that's another really cool aspect of red's uh, propensity for win conditions as, as well. Yeah, red red is very good at winning through aggro in the combat step, but surprisingly, like when the the deeper you dig with red, the more you realize I don't need combat for winning the game in red. You you know you think about it, you know for especially for newer players, they just want to turn creatures sideways with red, but you can do some pretty cool stuff with it outside of the combat step. And actually, speaking of the combat step, red is really good at getting a lot more of those too. Yes. Yeah, like just, extra combat stuff is a pretty big piece of red's color pie, and 
Um, that, that's absolutely devastating, particularly if you're combining it with like some kind of double strike effect or a man, or a damage double, like you mentioned, gratuitous violence. Yeah, it's got some very impressive stuff. So there are, I, I don't know, I don't play too much red. I always kind of give it some side eye. I'm like, oh, I don't want to play that color because it's very two-dimensional. But like as we were digging deep into the ways that red is going to win the game, I was like, huh, my conceptions of red are incredibly wrong here. Maybe I'm biased because all I ever play is necromancy. Maybe I should give red another look. I don't know. Maybe I am actually learning things on this podcast as well, Matt. Oh, well, I mean, I hope so. <laughs> okay, let's round things out by going to our final color, green. Matt, I know that you're obsessed with the Selesnia stuff, so we'll pass this one back to you. I, I do love green, and I do love the combat steps, so let's start there. Um, overrun effects. That is what green probably does the best out of every color. You have stuff like Overwhelming Stampede. Uh, you can do Beastmaster Ascension because you're playing green, so you're probably playing a fair amount of creatures. Beastmaster Ascension usually just means pay three mana and everybody that attacks gets plus five, plus five. Um, but green also does a lot of different things well, too. Uh, plus one, plus one counters, or just counters in general. Um, doubling season is a powerful card, if you hadn't heard. I don't know if you guys had, so I want to remind you. But yeah, doubling season, it does the plus one, plus one counters. Gets everything much bigger, much quicker. Uh, and that goes well into super friends, too. Uh, you know, getting your ultimates from a planeswalker on the turn you play it is a crazy powerful effect. Uh, most of the time, it's worth... You know, if you have to sacrifice your Planeswalker right away to get the ultimate, because of doubling season, it's usually worth it. Another thing green does really well is landfall and also big mana. Uh, it probably ramps better consistently than any other color. So you get stuff like Rampaging Balos. You usually get a lot of lands into play. Avenger of Zendikar both plays into the tokens route that some green decks do and the plus one, plus one counters. Uh, and then just doing a big Genesis wave is never a bad way to spend your day. <laughs> no, it isn't. Yeah, I mean, Genesis Wave for even, you know, 10 or 15, it's not going to get you all the way through your deck, but it's going to get you deep enough and get something big enough. You're, it's always going to be worth it. Uh, and finally, Infect. I I wouldn't give Green enough credit if I didn't talk about Infect a little bit, but Triumph of the Hordes is just a win card. That I mean, that card by itself in nearly any green deck is a win condition. Yeah, another really great example of the type of overrun effect. Although, I don't know, I see a lot of people being really salty about Triumph of the Hordes. But in my opinion, Triumph of the Hordes is killing people just as often as Overwhelming Stampede. That's just my experience. Probably, yeah. Giving everything plus one, plus one infect probably is akin to a plus three, plus three, or a plus five, plus five from a Beastmaster Ascension. Either way, you know, you're still winning through combat damage. You're getting enough damage through to make it worth it. So, yeah, I... I think Infect gets a little bit of bad press, but it, it still is efficient nonetheless. All right, so those were some of the very popular win condition style things that we see in green, but we don't just have, you know, all five colors. We've also got artifact decks. I mean, this includes, you know, colorless decks, but there are also decks of every color that will use artifacts well too. And artifacts can sometimes bring their own unique set of win conditions as well. So, Dana... How about we talk about some artifact win conditions? Yeah, there, and there's a good bit of them there, too. I mean, like, I've seen token swarm decks with artifacts. I, I died to a Bruticlad deck that was very much built around artifact um, tokens. Mere Battlesphere just kills people plenty of times. Sharding Sphinx is a legit card. So, like, you can definitely do token swarm stuff in artifacts. Or, like I mentioned earlier, just having a bunch of tokens or a bunch of artifacts allows you to kill people with a couple of different Tesserets. Um, there's 
there's a lot of combos in artifacts too, especially, which is why artifact sets tend to cause a lot of problems in standard. Um, you know, any kind of infinite mana or mana sink, things like Brea or Sharoom loops, uh, sort of the Meek and Thopter Foundry is a pretty well-known combo, Isochron Scepter and Dramatic Reversal, although Isochron Scepter and almost anything you can put under Isochron Scepter is really, really <laughs> yeah, good. That's true. That's true. Uh, you know, Nim Death Mantle has a ton of combos with it. Paradox Engine is obviously an insane card. Uh, there's a whole lot of things you can loop with, you know, Ashen's Altar or uh, Karks Clan Ironworks. So it's just, there's just a ton of, of, of combo synergy. When I think of combo like after blue, I tend to think you're doing something with artifacts as well. See, now that's the, the distinction for me. When I think of blue decks, I don't inherently think of combo. When I think of artifact decks, though, that's sure. when I think of combo. And blue is very good at artifacts, so yes, frequently that would kind of be a distinction without a difference. But I, it is a distinction that I've made in my head anyway, so that's probably the, uh, the disconnect that I was having when we were talking about blue earlier. For artifacts, though, I definitely am suspecting that a combo might be up that person's sleeve when I see them across the table. Well, and there's also a, a good bit of like just alt win conditions you can find that are tied in with the artifacts, whether it's Revel and Riches that cares about clue tokens, although it's in black, but it still requires the artifacts to do a thing. The new Mirrodin Besiege card, Hellkite Tyrant, uh, Mechanized Production, there's a mm. Dark Steel Reactor that's an artifact that is an alt win condition as well. So there's a lot of those that are, even if they're not colorless spells, are tied in with the artifacts as a way to win a game. Yeah, definitely. There's a whole lot of stuff here. And just going over each of these colors and, you know, referencing really quickly some of the common win conditions that we see for decks that include those colors, like, I think really what we're trying to hammer home is the importance of having a diversity of win conditions as well. And this is a really big thing for me personally in deck building. Just as an example, if you're playing a green deck, you know, you can probably expect to be winning through some variation of combat damage. But it's important to be able to look beyond just the combat damage, whether you're Voltroning someone out or you're going to have one big, huge, overwhelming Stampede Swarm. If someone has a constant mists and you only win with combat, you could be ruined. If someone got an infinite life combo and all that you have is one big army, yeah, it can deal 150 damage, but that won't kill them. Like, you do need to maybe have a diversity of win conditions as well so that you can have a failsafe in the event that you run into those types of situations. So knowing what the colors are capable of and the different ways that they can win is very, very important so that you don't end up against your worst nightmare in an EDH game. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I mentioned before how it's, this was maybe kind of a new thought process as well. I would say it's probably not a coincidence that my most two, the two decks that I've built most recently are probably the two that have the largest diversity of win conditions. Like, I think as I've gotten to be a better commander player, I think I've, I've discovered or built more of those into my decks than I would have, you know, a year ago, three years ago, five years ago for sure. I don't think the decks themselves are necessarily stronger. I just think they have a much more diverse spread of win conditions as I've kind of realized how important that is. So you'd mentioned an example earlier, Vela the Nightclad, who can make your artifacts basically unblockable, but can also do you know a bunch of tokeny stuff to make everyone lose a bunch of life. What are some other examples from your own decks that uh, have diverse win conditions? Well, uh, um, the other newer deck I've been playing a lot is my Crash to Bloodbraided deck, which is, is a plus one counters deck. But primarily, it's a fling deck, so it's built around 
you know, creatures that get plus one counters, and I try to stack as many of those as quickly as possible, and then I can just fling that 30-30 creature at somebody. Number one, that gets me around worrying about what can happen in the combat damage step. A constant miss doesn't do you any good, or a recurrable spore frog doesn't do you any good when I'm flinging a 30-30 at you. Um, so that, that gives me a lot of a lot of redundancy there, but because of the way Kresh is, himself is built, where he gets counters when another creature dies, well, then it basically kind of gives me a reusable fling. So I can like fling a, fling a creature to kill somebody, then Kresh gets twice as large, who I fling at somebody else. And there's multiple redundant flings in that deck. There's multiple redundant ways to put a ton of counters on creatures. There's things like Chandra's Ignition that just let me turn one of those giant creatures into a way to kill somebody. And, you know, I'm running Berserk in the deck to spend one mana to make a creature twice as large before I fling it. But as a backup plan, I can then just swing with that creature that's a 15-15 that I've turned into a 30-30 and given it Trample. So everything kind of synergizes together. There's there's just, a you know, a dozen to 15 different cards that give me ways to win, and they all kind of back one another up. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. And you it's great to have a diversity of those win conditions so you're not stuck in any one position right. for sure. Just looking at my own decks, I've also got some similar stuff. I mean, your crash deck also involves plus one counters. I've got a plus one counter deck in the form of Rayhan and Ishai. A really popular win condition in that deck for me is going to be Ishai. She naturally gains counters when other people cast spells, and she's one of my commanders, so I can easily commander damage people out with my flying bird person because that's going to be just very naturally something that the deck can do without putting in too much effort. What? But I can also... Oh, sorry. No, so that, that, that's a good point, though. Um, we're not saying that combat damage can't be your win condition because it absolutely can. You, sh- right. you should just know how to make that combat damage significant enough that that it can win a game. Like if you're just relying on that, you know, 2-2 bear to swing through f- 20 times, that's not a win condition. Whereas if you're looking at your commander who has evasion like Ishai does and has a way to make it huge, well, then that's a whole different deal. Exactly. And another thing that the deck will frequently do, I mean, it's not just Ishai that can get big. The deck is plus one counters. I can make another creature big. But something that I can do is like attack people with a couple of creatures. And then once they've assigned blocks and let one creature through, I can sacrifice a bunch of the other stuff to put all the counters onto the unblocked creature and bam, hit them out of nowhere. But it goes even further than that. Like the deck is, you know, naturally getting a bunch of very large creatures. So a thing that I added to it for the times that I'm not able to attack people is the card Essence Harvest, which drives Drains life from target player equal to the power of the biggest creature I control. Well, if I've got a 40-40 but I can't attack my opponents, I can still kill them. And now there's the new Simic Ascendancy. That's another amazing win condition for me as well because it will win me the game when I put counters on things. Like, those are just a really good spread of win conditions within that one deck that is capable of doing a lot of stuff, but it prevents me from being stuck in any position and from just spinning wheels and, you know, being up against uh, an immovable object. I still have ways around it. Matt, what about any examples from your particular decks? Diverse win conditions from those. So, I mean, in my Valdeck deck, I have Perforos, obviously. It's just a very powerful card that synergizes well with Valdeck making all the tokens that it does. But even mm. my Selesny decks, even in uh, my Miri deck, yes, Miri's all about attacking the combat step, making it hard to navigate that. But I also have, like I said, I have some infinite mana combos. So Walking Ballista is a very, very powerful card in there because you make a infinite, infinite walking ballista, you can just nug the table and kill them, even if they have infinite life, which is a nice way to get around some of those uh, stipulations that we talked about. You know, if somebody has infinite life, well, I can combat that because I can make infinite damage. 
I would say probably what else in my my Moldrotha deck. Actually, I just put in Simic Ascendancy actually not too long ago. Um, I still haven't gotten to see it yet because that's just the way that it goes when I put in new cards. But <laughs> um, it's a very powerful card that just says you you win the game. So that's something that I'm very excited to see in a Moldrotha deck that you know normally like we've talked about can struggle to close games. And then obviously in my my Shuyun deck, soon to be Kaikar. I mean, that's just all about the combat step. I, I, I can't make everything optimal, obviously. So, um, but there are, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that Shu Yun can get around some of those things. Um, you know, we talk about Voltron decks, you know, they're, they're mainly damage based, but commander damage is one way to get around not being able to, uh, to get past infinite life. Yeah, for sure. And there's something that you said in there that I think is really important. Like, I'm really big on diversifying my win conditions. That's a really important point for me. But you mentioned that you have a deck that might just be all about the aggro combat step. And I want to make it clear, that's fine. Yeah, That's okay. If you know that that's how your deck is going to win, you can focus things really, really hardcore to make everything a lot more synergistic. Because that is actually another... Like a push and pull, a really difficult problem with diversifying your win conditions. How do you know when you've diversified them too much and now the deck is right. trying to be pulled in different directions? So if you are focusing on just one method of win, well, that can definitely be very good. I like having the backup plans, but if you've got one plan and that plan is on a bullet train that's definitely going to be wrecking people, yeah. definitely power to you. Yeah, it, and, and there's different ways that my Shuyun deck gets around some of those obstacles like we've talked about. Um, it plays a lot of counter spells. It plays a lot of answers, basically, a bunch of removal to get around. Say they set up a Norn's Annex and I can't really attack very well. I play enough wearing tears and disenchant type of effects that I know how I can get around those situations without having to completely be shut down. Right. And if you know that combat is the way that you're going to mainly be winning and you're afraid of fogs, then you can prepare for things like that. You can put a Grand Abolisher in your deck or a Dramoka in your deck, and then people can't cast those things on your turn. The combat damage step becomes even more specialized because of your synergies, and you know that in deck building. And, and you can also kind of like take a look at, at your deck and, and understand how realistic that combat damage step is as a way to win. Um, I had a friend who built a Merfolk, an Azorius Merfolk tribal deck um, with Sig, I think it's River Guide is the white blue one, at roughly the same time I built my Azorius Sphinx deck. So we're talking the same colors, both of which are tribal decks, and both of our plans were roughly to kind of play a control game until we could win via combat damage. The difference is my 20 creatures in my deck are all 5-5s five and 6-6s six with evasion almost all of which have a ridiculous like eight or ten lines of text explaining, <laughs> explaining what weird ability they have. And all his are one ones and two twos with little or no abilities. I thought that maybe like a lifelink or an island walk. He didn't have a way to win games with a combat damage step. And I very frequently did just because by virtue of clocking somebody with three or four sphinxes at five damage a pop, that is a much more effective way to win in the combat damage step than trying to nug people down two damage at a time with a bunch of merfolk yeah that definitely resonates with me i've got an example here as well that i think is really important to mention as long as we're on a discussion about diversity in win conditions and it's from the original kaneos and tiro stalwart unity precon from commander 2016 i looked over this deck list i find it absolutely fascinating because of how 
very unique it is compared to a lot of the other precons that we'll see. You know, when you looked at Saskia, that was definitely a, a deck that was winning in one very straightforward way. Or when you looked at the Atraxa precon, it was all about plus one counters. That deck knew what it was doing. Kaneos and Tiro, if you don't have a keen eye, the win conditions in that deck might escape your notice. So I made a list of the things that I consider the main win conditions from the original 2016 Stalwart Unity precon. They are as follows. Selfless Squire, which prevents damage to you and then gets bigger and then can crack back on an opponent for even more damage. Rubble Hulk, which can buff up a creature equal to the number of lands that you control, because you're planning on making this a long game, so Rubble Hulk can instantly, suddenly, one of your tiny creatures becomes really big. Psychosis Crawler was also in that deck. The deck is drawing so many cards, making everyone draw so many cards, but eventually you'll turn all those cards into damage to them. Progenitor Mimic, to have a bunch of tokens on the board, that also applies to things like Hoofprints of the Stag as well. There was also Treacherous Terrain, which again turns lands into damage. Reigns of Power, which steals your opponent's stuff. And then also Imperial Plate, which you could then attach to your commander to turn your 2-8 into something very deadly with all the cards that you've drawn. Like, those win conditions are all over the place. There was a Keening Stone in there to mill people out over a long game. There was mill, there was tokens, there was thievery, there was drawing cards, there was amassing one huge beater, dealing damage based on lands. None of those win conditions necessarily overlap. That is also, though, the beauty of that deck. The win conditions are diverse and can therefore adapt to whatever happens in the game. But it's easy to look at that and say, well, these are really disparate, there's not a lot of synergy here. It's a very interesting discussion point, and I really admire that deck for how completely weird it is when it comes to its win conditions. Yeah, I mean, and you've talked about that deck several times, just how you keep changing it up too, making sure you're not using one strategy too much to, to, to you know get dependent on it. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense that you would have a very diverse array. I mean, and it's a four-color deck, so you have access to a lot of different ways to win as well. Yeah, I just really found that really fascinating when it came to a pre-con deck, but you know, if I had just been in a game looking at the cards, I might not have noticed that Selfless Squire was actually supposed to be used as a potential way to end the game. Or I might have thought that some of these cards were just really bad picks for the deck, but they actually leaned into its controlling strategy. So I just found that a very interesting point, because that was one of the most diverse decks I've seen in terms of win condition. But... I, I don't know, I kind of want to apply that exercise to some other practical things now here too. So thinking off the top of my head, what are some ways that you would diversify win conditions in like really linear archetypes? So for example, if you're in a green stompy kind of deck, what is a way that you might diversify a win condition when you're playing a green deck? Um, I mean, immediately Infect jumps to mind. I know that still uses the combat step, but there's, it's a way to combat, you know, making sure you only need one way or one thing to get through. So you know, somebody sets up a pillow fort, you probably have enough mana to pay for one creature to get through. Um, so all you need to do is 10 with that one creature, which usually isn't hard with, with green. Dana, I mean, if you're playing mono green, you don't have access to this. But if you add red, for example, you have some fling effects. Um, I know that's one thing that got me a few times in Kansas City uh, with Dana's decks. So yeah, having those fling effects is probably a good way because green does fatties really well. So having a fatty to fling probably will forecast quite fortuitously for you. 
<laughs> wow. Uh, okay, so then another one, mill, as an example. Mill is usually very, very straightforward. You're just planning on, you know, getting rid of everyone's decks, but there are some neat ways to also turn that into your advantage. I mean, I would think that mill is pretty straightforward, but you could also turn your mill deck into a reanimator deck and kill people with combat as well in the event that you just take all of the creatures out of their graveyard. Like, that's another one. Uh Lands matter. What would be something that you might diversify a lands matter deck to try and make sure that you've got multiple avenues towards victory? Um, so my favorite lands matter card is probably Valkit, Molten Pinnacle. That's a card that when you have, I believe it's eight mountains in play, uh, whenever another mountain enters the battlefield under your control, you get to basically lightning bolt somebody. Um, so I have a combo in my Angry Omnath deck where it's Perilous Forays plus Amulet of Vigor, and basically I sacrifice an elemental... I deal three damage to somebody because an elemental died, and then I search out a basic land, I or I put a, a land with a basic land type, basically. So I put that into play, I get an Omnath trigger, Amulet of Vigor untaps that ba- that land, tap it again, sacrifice elemental, and I do that loop, basically, uh, get all the lands out of my deck, essentially, and I have a bunch of bolts from everything ha- from everything dying plus the Valakut triggers that usually happen. So it's it's a pretty quick way that I accidentally won with once. Um, I didn't intentionally put that combo into the deck. I just thought they were very good lands cards. Turns out with Omnath, that's kind of a combo. Kind of like what Dana was saying earlier, you find win conditions yeah. upon playing the deck. Yep. And, you know, I'll speak about my, my lands matter deck, which is Amina and Den deck that was, that, that was you know, basically a landfall deck to start with. And then, like, you know, Valkut, like Matt mentioned, being a really good card. Well, of course, I'm, I might as well run that as well because I'm playing a bunch of lands. And odds are I will, I will just accidentally often enough, you know, hit enough mountains to make that useful. But you know what? Scapeshift is also a really good card in that deck since it gets me a bunch of landfall triggers. If I have, you know, a, a Bailoth's out or something, that's nice too. And hey, what do you know? That also plays really nice with Valkut. And I'm probably running Splendor Reclamation anyway in the deck just because it's a good way to get those landfall triggers out of lands that are in my graveyard because I'm running a bunch of fetches. Well, that also ties in really nice with, nice with Valkut and Scapeshift. So, you're, so all of a sudden you found like a bunch of these win conditions that also then are, are good on their own and they tie in with one another in different ways that give you multiple avenues to win with off those cards. Whether it's the mountains coming into play that, that dome somebody or those same mountains turning that new Multani into a you know 28-28 that you then cash on or ignition on. Um, or, you know, the Splendid Wreck triggers that make that Bayloss huge, make a ton of tokens for a swing next turn. There's just a lot of synergy with those win conditions, and it all ties in a nice little package. Yeah, I really like those landfall examples especially. There's just a whole lot of synergy going on there. And that is a really good lesson to take away from uh, th- those things as well, because, you know, I had mentioned that the Star Unity example was very, very disparate. None of those win conditions necessarily work together. But in a deck like those landfall stuff, yeah, they all do feed into each other. So just because you have diverse win conditions doesn't mean that they need to distract from one another. Uh, while we're on the subject of win conditions, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about alternate win conditions as well. Do you guys have any favorite alternate win condition cards? You know, those enchantments or those artifacts or those creatures that say you win the game if a certain condition is met? Are there any of those that like jump out to you as, as personal favorites? I will hang my hat forever on winning the game just once with Myel's Aria. 
That's that the card. one that you win if you get like a 20 power creature? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, it starts off small. Like if you have a, if you gain some life at the beginning and then later you put counters on something. And then once you have, yeah, I believe it's like if you have a creature with power 20 or greater, you win the game. That's pretty gross. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's really gross. And that was back in the early days when I didn't really know what I was doing. So winning with that just accidentally was a lot of fun for me. Well, it's important, too. I mean, we're in a format where our opponents have 120 combined life, which is why the combat step can kind of be a little bit fraught sometimes. So there's almost like a cadence to the game where you want to have, like, one big final finish. Just because you have a 2020, I mean, in a normal game, a one-on-one game, that is, that would win you the game on its own, probably. But here in EDH, I mean, that's six attacks if you're going to be knocking people down from their original life totals. So having those other things is is definitely really important. You actually have to build to a specific point and Miles Haria can definitely be it. One that we saw in Kansas City that was really, really troublesome was Approach of the Second Sun. That's a really powerful <laughs> win condition, although it does make you a target really quick. Um, a personal favorite for me, though, is probably Helix Pinnacle. I've never actually played it, but I really want to because I have a crew fix deck that can make a whole lot of mana, and Helix Pinnacle, if you put a hundred mana into it, can win you the game on the spot, and I think that's a I think that's really, really, really cool. I, I'm a fan of Revel and Riches. I think it's a really elegant design. I think one thing nice about it compared to a lot of the alt-win conditions is it does something useful, even if you're not using it to get the alt-win. Mm. Like Just making a treasure token when something dies is pretty great all unto itself in a whole lot of different ways. And having the option to use it as an alt-win condition is really nice, too. So that I, I'm a fan of that card because I think it's just useful in a ton of ways in addition to giving you a way to win a game. That is a really good thing to remark upon, actually. Yeah, to make sure that there are still synergies happening with the rest of your deck and that the card isn't dead. Uh, I, I, I think that's a really good observation. All right, all right. Ooh, maybe I'll have to switch mine to Rebel Matches <laughs> now because that actually sounds really, really fun. And it's a black card, and you know that Joey likes black and death triggers and stuff. So mm, maybe you've convinced me, Dana. See, you are learning. Matt was right. <laughs> They'd say we, we can teach the young pup all the tricks, but we can't teach these old dogs like I, Dana and I. Wow. So there's one more segment that I really want to touch on here, and it isn't just alternate win conditions, it's actually secret win conditions. Cards that, you know, have a general use, but can also, if you're paying attention, win you the game. And these are pretty important. It's always good to evaluate your deck for win conditions, to find them in places you might not have expected. And, I don't know, these sort of come in the form of modal cards or generally useful cards. I guess I'll just stop waffling and get to the main point for me that I realized that the card Living Death in my graveyard decks was actually a win condition card and not just what I had always anticipated it to be, a Wrath of God effect. Living Death switches all creatures in play with all creatures in graveyards, and I would frequently use that as just a way to wipe the board when I thought I was under pressure and get back some good value creatures. But if I play my cards right, Living Death is a way for me to win the game because I've loaded up like 20 or something creatures in my graveyard and then slam them into play with a bunch of enter the battlefield effects and, for example, Grey Merchant the rest of the table out of the game. Like, that's a spell that isn't just one thing, it's actually also a win condition, given the correct circumstances. Are there any other cards like that, sort of, quote, secret win conditions that jump out to you guys as well? The cards that you should reevaluate in another light that can also sometimes accidentally, oops, you win the game. Uh, Finale Devastation was an all-star in Kansas City. <laughs> uh, that card just came out of nowhere, and just even if you just X for, you know, 10 and just get the bare minimum... It's so crazy powerful. It impressed me all weekend long. 
Uh, but right, but that could just be a tutor to go find you a creature. But if it's got <laughs> enough mana behind it, plus 10, plus 10 for all your dudes. Yeah, it's it's an overrun. It's a Green Sun Zenith all rolled up into one. I was super high on it when I first saw it, and I have only had that impression reinforced. Um, but another one that I really like uh, that I put into my Moldrotha deck after I kind of refocused it was Marionette Master. Uh, being able to kind of ping everybody down uh, gradually doesn't get a ton of attention, which means it gets to live long enough to actually do a good job. Um, I've enjoyed having Marionette Master as a kind of a, a backup win condition that doesn't use the combat step again. Right. Marionette Master could also just be a way to make a bunch of bodies, though, because it enters and you can make a bunch of servos, and that's a great way to you know fill up the board. But you can also load it with counters and then sacrifice your artifacts, and then boom, people lose life. Like, that's a great one. Yep. Uh, one I'm a fan of, um, it's an older card that's on the reserve list, unfortunately, but Hatred. I've killed a ton of people over the years with Hatred, and, and not <laughs> just necessarily of my own creature. You're trading your life, but oftentimes if a commander's swinging through, or even if we're at the point in the game where everyone's life total is fairly low, you just kill somebody. And there's a lot of decks where that life loss is not a big deal, particularly if your commander has some kind of life gain. So you mentioned a Laurel before, Joey. A Laurel's a perfect deck to be running Hatred, and it's not in nearly enough of those decks, although the price point and the fact that it's an old card does make a difference there. So that's that's a favorite of mine yeah. for sure. But yeah, that's another great example of a way to wield what that deck is naturally doing. Um, I'm reminded also of when Cameron from Lab Maniacs was on our show. He talked about using the card Reality Shift as a win condition. And as a reminder, that's the one that exiles a creature and then manifests the top card of someone's deck, uh, of that creature's controller's deck. And I'm like, what? That's just a removal spell. But it turns out what they sometimes will do in CEDH is get an infinite mana combo and then use something like Tassiger to recur that spell repeatedly from the graveyard and then exile someone's creature, and then they are forced to manifest the top card of their deck, and then they'll get back the reality shift and manifest the and exile the manifested creature and manifest another one. And so by repeatedly casting the reality shift, they are slowly one by one decking out the person by removing the creatures that the reality shift is itself making. Like, I had never anticipated that a removal spell could also be a win condition provided the right circumstances. Like, that's absolutely bonkers to look at that card through a different lens. But it is something that, you know, a hyper-focus on win conditions can definitely reveal to you. Yeah, it turns out, you know, looping a removal spell and just kind of keeping the board clear is pretty good. I've got another example, and it's one that I think actually you had mentioned earlier when you were talking about Mono Black doing big mana stuff, um, and that's the Damnable Pact. I mean, that could just be a regular draw spell, but if you were to load 40 mana into it, you could drain someone else for 40. Otherwise, if you just load like 5 mana into it, you can target yourself, lose 5 life, and draw 5 cards, but that's a really cool one. Or earlier, I had mentioned Blue Sun Zenith. That's a great draw spell for Blue, but you could also load like 90 mana into it if you have it and then force someone to deck out like those are really great secret win conditions as well yeah the classic sign in blood kill is <laughs> always elusive but, but i mean when i was running big mana trana as a deck years back um it was right after denimble pact came out and i would bet i cast it as a kill spell just as often if not more often than i did as a draw spell i mean I don't doubt it. Black can make a whole lot of mana, but it's nice to have that versatility. Yeah. And if I wasn't looking at things, you know, angling towards how is my deck actually going to win the game, I might not have ever evaluated that card the way that it probably should be evaluated. Like, that's actually very deadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So that brings me to 
our final segment, where we challenge the statistics. We take a look at some, you know, some of the data on EDHREC, and we say that maybe, you know, the cards are seeing too much play, or maybe the cards are seeing too little play. And the card that I've got for Challenge the Stats this week is what I deem a secret win condition. This is in my Lord Windgrace deck, and that is the card... Kessig Wolf Run. People probably know this one, just adds a uh, colorless mana to your mana pool, or you can pay red and a green and X and tap the land to give target creature plus X plus zero and trample until end of turn. Lord Windgrace is really good at landfall stuff, and that deck is full of them. I've got the ability to make tokens with Omnath and Rampaging Bailoffs, or I can get a bunch of Obnixilis triggers to make people lose life, but I can also make a bunch of mana in that deck, which means that a single activation of Kessig Wolfrun could nug someone for like 30 damage. That's just a land, but it's also a win condition. And in fact, it was so good as a win condition in my Lord Windgrace deck that I also put it into my Kaneos and Tiro group hug deck because that could be another way to secretly win the game, even with just a regular part of my mana base. Kessig Wolfrun only shows up in 12% of Lord Windgrace decks. That is criminal. It needs to say so much more play. You have so much mana in that deck, and it can turn any creature into a super deadly threat. So if you are looking for good win conditions in Lord Windgrace, I highly recommend that you find room for the Kessig Wolfrun. Yeah, and it probably slots in really well to Dana's fling deck because you, you power up one creature, then you can fling it for all the more damage. Same with this card that he just talked about, Hatred, too. They're both in that deck. <laughs> I am not surprised. All right, Dana, what is your challenge to stats for this week? My challenge to stats is on is basically on three cards, and it's oh. it's their use in three separate decks, basically, and that would be Soul's Majesty, Hunter's Prowess, and Hunter's Insight. Um, all three, well, in the case of Soul's Majesty, you draw cards equal to the power of target creature. Um, Hunter's Insight and Hunter's Prowess both draw you cards based on the damage that creature deals. The problem with those cards that's generally accepted is the fact that not only can you counterspell them, you can remove the creature in question and the cards just fizzle. They're not like Rishkar's expertise where it scales down. So if you've got a 6-6 six, six and a 5-5 five, five out, someone has to remove both those creatures or it's just going to hit the next one in the, the chain. With Insight, Prowess, and Soul's Majesty, it's a target situation. So if someone removes that creature, the spell fizzles. However... Sagarda Host of Hurons and Earl of Miststalker mm-hmm. both have hexproof, removing that restriction. And Dragonlord Dramoka prevents people from casting spells on your turn if Dramoka's out. If you are running all three of those or any of those three from your command zone, all three of those are really, really powerful draw spells whose downside is basically eliminated. At that point, it's only vulnerable to a counter spell. And in the case of Dragonlord Dramoka, not even that. So I think those don't see nearly enough play in those three decks. I really like that pick. I, I guess another thing I'd be afraid of is if people are playing like a fog, for example. But Dragon Lord Dramoka is not going to let right. them do that. And if you have built your deck with you know that sort of stuff in mind, and you've prepared things like Grand Abolishers, you can be safe on even that front. But you're right. The main restriction of those cards would be that. We're afraid of a removal spell when we target our creature with the Hunter's Prowess, but that could also easily be not the case when they've got that Hexproof. That's a pretty powerful thing to just absolutely decimate someone and draw a bunch of cards for it. Yeah, in, in the case of Sigarda or even Ural, which are oftentimes Enchantress decks, you also have access to things like City of Solitude that prevent people from casting spells in your turn as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of synergy there that makes those cards even safer than normal. 
Yeah. Ooh, really gross. I really hope I don't get hit with a creature with Hunter's Prowess anytime soon and that you draw a bunch of cards from my misery. I hope I do. I hope <laughs> not. Okay, let's wrap up with Matt. All right. Well, mine is one of my favorite win conditions, and I think it gets... Uh, well, obviously, the stats show that it gets swept under the rug a little bit, maybe a little overlooked, but Pathbreaker Ibex is my pick. Uh, four green green. I can't believe you haven't done this one already. I know. I, I was a little surprised as well. But four green green for a 3-3 three, three goat, and it reads, whenever Pathbreaker Ibex attacks, creatures you control gain trample and plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is the greatest power among creatures you control. Uh, basically, it's just a very big overrun, and, it's tr- and it stacks really well with overrun effects. I think in Kansas City, I never got to untap with it because that card had such a big target on its back. Because uh, once you see a Pathbreaker Ibex, you know that something's going down the very next turn. Um, oh, yeah. I very much enjoy Pathbreaker Ibex. Currently, it is seeing play in 4,390 decks, 4% of all eligible decks. Um, it is behind a great number of other creatures. And I think if you're looking for another win condition and you're playing either a go wide or a go tall deck, uh, this is a very, very good addition because it's going to scale off the biggest creature you have. So like Dana said about Rishkar's expertise, where you get rid of the six power creature, you're still going to get the five power creature buffing up the team as well. Um, it's such a great effect. It's so good. It's going to end games. It's just another overrun effect that I think not enough people are playing. And it got forgotten. It wasn't, you know, it was a $3 card for a long time because in the pre-con that it was in, I don't think it was terribly popular. Um, but it's gotten up there in price now. People are, I, I'm hoping, starting to take notice of it as it's gotten up to almost $10. But as far as win conditions go, it's it's a good $10 investment. It's gotten up to $10? It is $9.50 on Card Kingdom right now. Well, that's ludicrous. Well, I mean, that goes to show you the secret power of the card. That thing crept up while I wasn't looking. Well, mm-hmm. in, in talking earlier about like backup win conditions in, in mono green, even if you're not diversifying yourself to a bunch of different types of wind conditions, that's your backup to Crater Hoof. That's your backup to, you know, your overrun. Right. Like, it's not a if, – if you're if that's how you're going to win the game and that's your only game plan, then you are definitely going to want multiple ways to do that. And things like Pathbreaker Ibex or God Eternal Ronus just give you multiple paths to achieve that that goal. Yeah, that is some impressive stuff for sure. Dudes, this was so much fun. I really like talking about win conditions in decks because it's not something that's immediately apparent on any Commander's EDH rec page, and it's just really useful to look at things from that lens of, like, not just what does my Commander do and how can I build the deck around it, but what is the deck planning on doing so that I can close out these games? Are there any final thoughts that you guys have about win conditions in your decks? Games gotta end, man. Games gotta end. (laughs) They absolutely do. Um, it's the kind of thing that I think that you should be thinking about when you build your deck, um, at least have it in mind, but also don't get stressed out if you don't know what it is right away. Sometimes, like we said earlier, Mm. you find it in the edit and you just have to play that deck to see what those lines are, but, but also be thinking about it and be conscious of it while you're playing it, because if you're not looking for it, you might not see them either. Yeah. And a really important point, I think, as well, is that it's not just important to think about what your deck will be doing to win the game. You should be thinking critically about win conditions for other people's decks as well. You should look at other people's commanders and sort of, you know, make 
a guess or two about what it is that they might be doing. When you sit down across from an Azami Lady of Scrolls player, then you can probably anticipate that it's going to be some type of lab maniac combo, and therefore that you know you have to get rid of their lab man first and foremost. Or if you play against Brea or Gave, then you can you know, anticipate that there will probably be some nature of 56 billion different combos that those commanders are capable of, and therefore you can know which of their cards to prioritize removing to try and disrupt them. If you sit across from a, a Phoenix player who's going to try milling you out, and you have a Kozilek in your deck which will reshuffle your deck if they ever try to mill you, then that helps you know whether or not you consider them a threat. So thinking about win conditions from your opponent's side of the field is also useful to help know how to best disrupt and therefore beat your opponent. Identifying their key aspects of their win conditions is a great way to avoid misplays and to figure out exactly how you are going to win, even just through looking at their decks and what's important to them. And that's also a really important lesson here as well. Yeah, I think just the big takeaway from this whole episode is don't be afraid of win conditions. I think people, they, they want to make sure everybody's having fun and not creating feel bads, which I understand and I, I, I can totally get behind that thought process. But eventually, you know, like we've said, you spin wheels are you really accomplishing anything? You know, the the if a game ends, say somebody drops a Pathbreaker Ibex or uh, Marionette Masters somebody out, you get to play again. And that's always something fun because then you can win a different way and somebody else can have a chance to win in a different way. So don't be afraid of win conditions and playing them. I'm sure if somebody's getting, you know, a little upset that you win the same way over and over again, have a conversation and that just, you know, fosters your play group. But don't be afraid to, to actually win games. Yeah, know what your deck does. That's very, very important. And knowing what your opponent's deck, what their decks do as well, is also very important. Like, just, it, it's such a valuable conversation to have. And Dana, maybe you're right that this is more of a recent conversation that people are having. But it is very, very important to make sure that you know what your deck is doing. Because that is how you're going to definitely eke out the most victories. And, hey, winning is really, really fun. Do you guys know what my favorite win condition is? We don't. Is this a dad joke? I hope it's uh, my favorite win condition is playing games against Matt. Morgan. Uh, On that note, we're gonna call this episode uh, to a close. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on Twitter at Joseph M. Schultz is a fart brain at <laughs> twitter.com. Uh, but no, my Twitter is Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-55. <laughs> and Dana. my Twitter is at Dana Roach, and you can hear me twice a week on my other show, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him and Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes, and if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This cast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Monty is going back. I hear him tap tap. A click, a click clacking. That's him doing a tap dance. He's probably uh, like I'm, the best dancer in the house, if we're going to be honest. You know nothing about my dancing skills. He, I, but I hear Monty practice every week. When was the last time you practiced your dance skills? I was in the Seattle men's chorus. I'm actually an excellent dancer. How dare you?
I'm just saying, I, I hear Monty dance all the time, and I never once have heard you dance. <laughs> um, I think that it's probably the way of things that you shouldn't be able to hear me dance. Well? I would argue that when you can hear someone dancing, it's not <laughs> dancing. <laughs> um, Stomp would like to have a word, sir. Fair enough, fair enough. 